Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. As we continue our discussions on the important subject of artisanal small-scale mining. I'm pleased that I'm going to have a conversation with one of the more experienced people in this area. Nelly Mutemeri is a geologist tent development practitioner and an associate professor with the School of Mining and Engineering at Viz University in South Africa. Nelly founded an advisory firm and she advises governments, mining companies, artisanal mining associations, multilateral agencies and NGOs all over the world, but particularly in Africa. Nelly has also recently expanded the advisory service to climate change and energy because of the interlinkage between the three issues. Nelly, it's lovely to have you. Thank you for joining me. Sheila, thank you very much for inviting me to participate in your podcast. I'm I'm really honored uh, to speak about a subject that is very dear to my heart at this nice Moscow mining. That's wonderful. So I thought that I'd spend a bit of time talking to you uh, about the regulatory environment. And and I wanted to to, uh, understand from you, is it your experience that the regulation of artisanal small-scale mining is a function of standalone policies and laws, or is the uh, activities around artisanal small-scale mining, are they embedded in state on policies and laws that govern large-scale mining? Yeah, thank you, Sheila. I think the provision for the administration or the management of the artisanal small-scale mining sector in countries where it exists is largely um, part of the bigger mining code. Uh, indeed, you find, in, particularly in Africa, in some countries, you do have uh, provisions of specific ASM policies, but the law is usually within one mining code, and the provisions are then provided specifically where there's licensing rights and obligations is actually provided within the bigger um, mining code. So in, in your observation, given the uh, different challenges that face artisanal mining and their unique nature, how well is this uh, you know, combination of artisanal small-scale mining and large-scale mining uh, working from a regulatory perspective? Yeah, you know, I think one of the biggest challenges around how small-scale mining is regulated um, is that this codification has has been a a process that has reflected, uh, particularly for for developing countries, that uh, one could say, for want of a better phrase, um, the results of extractive industries of a settler uh, approach. Um, is that artisanal small-scale mining did exist in Africa before colonization, and with the codification that came with, with the extractive industries of settler economies, you found that it was then kind of excluded. And then with the changes in political dynamics, where you now have uh, countries becoming independent, introducing parastatals, you also had an evolution that matched that. So what you have, you have... Um, an introduction of ASM regulation within the bigger mining code. Um, and, and because it, it's, it, a lot of it was a cut and paste, uh, not probably well thought through, there were obviously challenges coming with that. Um, so in, to, my, to my mind, I think that a lot of the time, the, the challenges are because 
the rights and obligations are provided, but uh, usually it's a scaled down um, uh, provision from the perspective of large uh, small scale mining, not taking into account the actual needs of the sector. And I think that's probably one of the challenges why uh, ASM is difficult to regulate. So uh, can you explain to our listeners what you mean by codification? Yeah, so um, as you know, um, the regulation of uh, artisanal small scale mining did not happen in the way that it happens in the modern world before colonization. Um, I believe some authors that are experts on the subject uh, see artisanal mining pre-colonization as um, a livelihood common. So people would be free to go and, and forage for gold for, uh, for uh, whatever, making jewelry or to trade amongst themselves. But the codification, which means actually making laws out of the practice is something that was introduced with, with, uh, with the settler extractive economies. Uh, so it's now like, oh, you now have a law that has in parliament and, and, and people, everybody has to comply with that particular written down law. Okay, so basically what you mean is that the uh, practice existed and, and it, it predated uh, the settlers who brought in a different set of systems for regulating mining and that the focus of those laws was in large scale. And that when it came to artisanal small scale mining, uh, we kind of went backwards and tried to formalize after the fact an existing activity. Would that be about right? You couldn't have said, I couldn't have said it better myself exactly that, um, that, you know, these activities existed, but the new um, uh, systems had to now, or the, the activities now had to fit in with the new system of management, managing the sector is indeed. So in your view, what would be better uh, or, or what is um, more uh, practical? Would it be more, have been more practical for the uh, regulators of today to have gone back to ground zero? Uh, or would it have been more preferable that they create a standalone policy and legal dispensation that essentially sought to formalize, legalize artisanal mining while giving regard to its history. Where do you think would be perhaps the, uh, the right balance? Yeah, I think for me, I think we, we can't uh, undo history. History is what it is. I think what we can do is look at where we are and try to move forward. And I think for me, um, one of the things that I really like about the African Mining Vision, for example, is it's um, the, the country mining vision process, which seeks to domesticate the African mining vision. What the, the process uh, tries to promote is the inclusivity of the process of policy formulation. So I think from where we are today, I think it's important to have processes that talk to the issues on the ground, and that can only be done by being inclusive of all stakeholders and all actors in the sector, uh, so that we develop policies which uh, become the basis of uh, laws and regulations that actually respond to, to, to the need on the ground. So, so you think uh, inclusive decision-making with a view to making sure that the uh, laws and policies are representative is more important than trying to recreate history because a, a lot of water has passed on that bridge and we have moved on now. Uh, so, I mean, 
let's think of it in, in another way. Um, when we think of artisanal small-scale mining today, do we see it primarily as a business or as a way of making a living? Because my sense is that if it is simply a way of making a living, then it has subsistence connotations. But if it is a business, then it has completely different connotations. Where are we now in terms of the general thinking, including uh, the tenants of uh, the Africa mining mission? I think that the, so, small-scale mining is, is, uh, encompasses a wide spectrum of activities um, in, in what is being called ASM, which is artisanal and small-scale mining, from your one-man and or woman in the speak and shovel small groups, which may, some of which may be family units, as well as uh, organized semi-industrial mechanized operations. So you have this really uh, broad spectrum of activities, which we all call artisanal small-scale mining. And I think perhaps that's where some of the complications come from. I think that um, the, in the, the, one of the biggest challenges regulating the sector, at the upper end of ASM1, for example, you, you, know, you, you can have quite formal activities where uh, the expectation to collect taxes and comply in a normal, almost the similar way that you do like, like scale mining is possible. But at the lower end where you have subsistence, which is really about survival, I think that it, the, the, the approach should not really just about when you collect taxes, but I think the approach should really be an integrated one, which talks to the need for a livelihood and yet at the same time, recognizing that this is a national asset and yet at the same time recognizing that the activity itself impacts on the, on the environment and therefore you have to internalize the environmental and health costs of its activity. So I think it's really about how to provide, even for those subsistence activities, a way that uh, provides for efficient production, for good environmental practices, where even if it's just a livelihood, it's an efficiently uh, um, uh, done livelihood as opposed to leaving uh, environmental and occupational health uh, legacies behind. So those frameworks should talk to that. True, but isn't this uh, easier said than done? You know better than I uh, the statistics. So it is estimated, for instance, that uh, in the DRC, there are more than 2 million artisanal uh, small-scale miners. Uh, in your country of birth, uh, Zimbabwe, they talk about probably uh, half a million, and so the list goes on. When confronted with these numbers, uh, when confronted with the fact that you are dealing with individuals or family units, as you said, how does the state uh, target them in a way that can reliably measure production, determine whether there's any tax to pay or not, and for that matter, then hold them accountable for environmental best practice. How, given this, the numbers, is this possible? I, I think, it, it, to my perspective, I think um, it's, it's really about uh, the will to actually make a difference. I don't know, I, I don't want to point fingers, but I don't know that we have done um, the, the, the right thing in terms of how we develop the processes to manage the sector and how well committed different stakeholders are to actually administering the sector um, so that it actually properly functions. 
I'll give you an example of um, there are some countries, and, and this is one of my positions around managing the ASM sector. I think indeed, uh, because you're dealing with individuals with family units, it's difficult to expect a family unit to go and do a comprehensive uh, environmental and social impact assessment and, 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 pro and produce an environmental management plan and then for them to provide rehabilitation deposit and actually rehabilitate. But I think one of the, 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 the things that I've seen provided in some um, uh, regulatory frameworks is the, uh, the designation of ASM areas. Uh, granted, it hasn't been successful, and I don't think it's not been successful because um, it doesn't work, but I think it's really just how it has been structured, how it has been arrived to. The idea being that you have areas that are designated for ASM, and with those areas, you can have combined EIAs, combined EMPs, but governments and other stakeholders have to be committed to the process of saying, we want to manage this, and we need to provide the spaces where you're not managing one individual, but you're managing more of the space rather than individuals. So your environmental impacts are, are managed, your social impacts are managed, as well as efficient uh, operation provision of skills, provision of knowledge, provision of equipment, supporting capital access. I think this kind of um, uh, aggregated uh, uh, management of ASM, I think, is, is perhaps one solution. And I think, uh, in my opinion, I think it warrants uh, perhaps piloting and experimenting properly rather than in the piecemeal that I've seen it being implemented in some jurisdiction. So, so one of the challenges, I mean, I think you, you make an important point, which is to say, don't focus on the individual, manage not the people, but the process and the interface between the people and the environment. Because in, in the end, that is where the common denominator uh, is. But when I think about it, um, I'm trying to visualize us doing this, say for instance, uh, in the DRC or in Ghana or in Mali, or for that matter, in Ethiopia, uh, which are countries in which uh, there's significant amount of uh, artisanal mining. When I think about this, it's almost as if we would have to put a stop button to the process, which is to say, we'd say, okay, folks, let's go to ground zero. Uh, or even if it's, it's on a, a marginal uh, level. When people, Nelly, um, making a living, struggling to put bread on the table, where do you think we're going to find the luxury of saying, let's take a pause, we're going to reinvent this? How feasible is that? To what extent can we expect the people we are trying to help to, to cooperate with such a, an approach, do you think? It, in my opinion, let's take a pause doesn't work because you, as you rightly say, this is about putting uh, uh, food on the table for, for, for poor rural communities. I think that I think it has to be a transitional um, uh, process uh, where um, all stakeholders come together um, and the process is put in place to actually understand what the issues are and what works for different, obviously it works differently for different countries and then come up with a framework that is holistic and integrated, which takes into account everybody's opinion about what they would like to see out of how the ASM sector is managed. And then, and then trial that. I, I, I see it almost as a formalization by province or by area. Because and so, so, so you actually, because as you're also implementing, because remember we're all learning, 
this is not a, a silver bullet. It has never been done before. I think that um, a, a wholesale stoppage of ASM to say, okay, ground zero, we're starting a pressure, it's not going to work because you're going, people are going to starve because people rely on it for, for, for uh, you know, their meals and, and sending their children to school and that sort of thing. I think a more phased approach um, is, is probably the, the, the best way to go. Right. So um, most people uh, tend to uh, see artisanal mining as uh, illicit, illegal, uh, and, and many of them see it this way, especially the illegal bit, because they presume artisanal miners occupy and extract illegally, which is to say, uh, in the absence of a formally granted license by the owner of the resource, which in most African countries is uh, the sovereign state. Is this correct? How much of the uh, artisanal mining activity has legally been sanctioned by the uh, host countries? Look, I think that it's probably it's a fraction of the activities that currently exist. And I'm talking about the African continent, for example. I think the 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 operations that are licensed um, are only a fraction of the total activity. But at the same time, you actually also have to acknowledge the fact that there is a continuum of uh, for for uh, almost like illegality, if you want to call it that. And informality. So you have, uh, I, I often say, in, informality, illegality, and criminality. So there is a, a continuum. Um, and and what often what what I see is uh, informality is those in quotation legitimate activities of ASM where people are trying to make a living and they're probably not harming anyone specifically directly. Um, and then there is that continuum to to illegality where they're encroaching on someone else's property, then you have all the way to criminal, where you have criminal syndicates that actually drive the activities. So in that whole continuum, I think the responses have to be different because if, if it's a criminal activity that is linked to other movement of contraband, then you, you know, I think the law has to come down on that. But on the extreme end, where it is informal and people are trying to make a livelihood and there's a legitimacy, some of it based on thousands of years of extracting the resource in some countries in Africa. I think there has to be that acknowledgement that um, we have to find creative solutions on actually how to allow those activities to be permitted um, until people have got different uh, livelihood, um, um, alternative livelihoods to actually access. You make a very important uh, point of disaggregating this because this has always been my problem, uh, Nelly, that when people speak of artisanal small scale mining, there is this, uh, if you wish, oversimplification of issues, which uh, leads to a failure to understand the component parts. So let, let's deal with the, the, the informal. So the informal sector exists across all industries. So what you are saying is, in this particular instance, artisanal small-scale mining is no exception. We have informal businesses, uh, whether it's retail, selling of things, or agriculture. And, and that, that's just people uh, using their ingenuity to try and egg a living, and that we, must, we can't criminalize that. And, and I agree with you. 
Uh, and then there is uh, illegal. The illegal is, is, is very clear, which is intent to break a law knowingly. The challenge, Nelly, I have is how do you know? Because here you, you then have to prove intent. How, when you have the 5 million artisanal small-scale miners in the DRC, do you know which one belongs to which? Uh, is this the experiment we are talking about? Or are there means today of being able to separate the two and therefore impose different uh, regulatory and legal requirements? I think that I think the point that we discussed earlier about uh, the interface and in, in managing spaces and not individuals, I think, um, to, to some, in my mind, to some extent, kind of supports um, how one could actually do that. So an individual can be working as an informal miner, and tomorrow they can be an illegal miner, and tomorrow they can be a criminal miner, or rather in a criminal mining activity. So it's not the individual. I think it's the space and the interface. Um, so if so, from a I think from a policy and regulatory perspective, it's about providing those spaces and then dealing with anything that is outside that space according to how the law actually uh, provides for. Um, that's that's how I think. I think it 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 doesn't make sense to go and carry out a census and say, are you illegal? Are you criminal? Are you informal? Um, because it, things can change very quickly. Uh, it's really about the spaces and, and and the environment in which and how things are actually being done. Yeah, that's that's interesting because I've always also thought that that was a missing link. You are a geologist and you could probably discern uh, certain ore bodies that lend themselves to artisanal small-scale mining that environmentally mean that uh, your small-scale or artisanal small-scale miner can extract the ore with relatively less uh, damaging impacts. And I've always been intrigued that the authorities aren't being proactive in zoning areas and saying, we have surveyed this, we know there's ore here. In terms of uh, the economics of the geology, we think this is better extracted this way, because I think that not only would optimize natural uh, wealth, but it also tackle in part the uh, differentiation that you are proposing. Would you agree with that, for instance, that even just zoning geologically would be a good start? No, absolutely. It, 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 it makes sense. I think because mining is all based on a resource, so that's where it starts. Um, so I think the importance of our geological surveys actually being part of the process, that's, that's why it has been an inclusive process. Um, do the geology, define an area, um, and then do the, the, the engagement, the inclusive engagement that actually allows you to, to bring in everybody on, on, the, on, the, on the path. Um, one of the challenges that I have observed, uh, Sheila, in, in the past is where in trying to move artisanal miners that are encroaching on, on the large scale properties is to move them to an area where the resources like, you know, <laughs> not even mineable. And, and it's, it's almost like if, if I was an artisanal miner, I would feel, I would feel offended that you think that I can just move from this place where I can easily mine and get what I need to this area where there's uh, refractory gold, which is impossible to extract. So I think the understanding and the definition of those artisanal mining zones is very important. And it has to start with the geology because the, you have to have a resource 
uh, on which you're actually then proposing the additional mining zone? So, you know, Nelly, as you and I who work in the mining and uh, oil and gas space know, these resources tend to uh, attract a lot of uh, emotion. Uh, the result of which is that very often uh, we can't separate the myth from the reality. Uh, when I'm, I'm listening to you now, talking about, you know, separating spaces and, and determining uh, where geologically, uh, you know, all bodies may be best suited for artisanal uh, mining, etc. I'm reminded that minerals are not the only resource that people use informally. People use water, people use forests, people use uh, land informally. But you don't get this feather that you get whenever you discuss uh, uh, minerals. And, and I, I was wondering, uh, Nelly, whether or not this is part of the problem, that by nature, the way we perceive minerals, both as a problem but as a solution, is often overstated. And that the result is that um, governments and others are very timid to get involved and do the right thing. How much of the failure to arrest all these problems, despite the availability of minds like yours and others. How much of that is just that politicians look at the numbers of people involved at grassroots and think, politically, I cannot survive uh, regulating this and putting regulations that risk alienating me? How much of this is uh, political expediency, do you think? I think that um, it's unfortunate that um, there is that, that thinking because I think um, the challenge of artisanal sports mining is not just for politicians, it's really for all of us. That's why you are having these blogs on artisanal sports mining is really to raise the profile. So your role as as, as, a, as a development practitioner in, in the sector is just as important as the role of, 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 of politicians. Um, obviously, it is through political discourse um, and how it influences government that we see development frameworks actually that provide space for us to have the desired change. But I think all actors in society can play their part. Um, and, and in that, so, so that includes CSOs, CBOs, media, private sector, and, and the like. And then again, going back to the process that I mentioned earlier, the country mining vision process of the Africa mining vision um, and, and this encouraging this inclusivity means that I think politicians need not fear because I think they're simply the leaders. But I think that it's everybody's responsibility to actually bring about the, the policies that lead to regulation of the sector. I think that if they were, it probably needs a paradigm shift in the, in the kind of political thinking that actually. Um, if you do the right thing, um, you will not be blamed. I think that it's possible to have a win-win situation. There's space for artisanal small-scale mining, there's space for industrial-scale mining and we, in any economy, um, and, and that policy must just have, I think, the courage of their convictions to actually say and take it head on and actually say, let's take, bring all stakeholders to develop the frameworks that, that, that are inclusive of the needs of everyone. Um, and, and we will have, um, I, 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 in my opinion, I think it's just a, a sense of recognizing that they're probably you know, more afraid of their own fears than anything else.
So it's, it's imaginary uh, that the, the impact on them would not be as dire as they think. But, but having said that, of course, uh, nearly, uh, people act not on fact so much, but on perception. And, and, and as the saying goes, perception is reality. L let me uh, delve into another reality. We, we have talked a lot about the uh, need for people to make a living and the need to create the necessary space for the informal uh, and the needy. I want to talk about the, the Ill illegal aspects. Of course, uh, the artisanal small-scale uh, mining activities span a whole value chain. We, we have focused now on, on the extraction. The extraction, because it's physical, we can see it, and we can uh, also appreciate its impact on the environment. What isn't so clear is who are the beneficiaries we know the environment loses. We know the people whose health is affected lose. What we don't know is who ultimately benefits. If it is gold, we know it ends up in the world's gold capitals, and they are all known to you and I. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask you this question, uh, Nelly. Should those people have any responsibility to materially contribute to reclaiming and protecting the environment post-extraction? No, absolutely, absolutely. I think that the, this, this is uh, perhaps a subject that is very much um, on the global stage at the moment. It has been perhaps for a couple of decades. Um, this is around responsible mineral supply chains. Um, I, I think um, in, in the recent uh, uh, past, uh, you have had your Kimberley process certification schemes, you've had your US Dodd-Frank Act, and it's section 1503, and then you've got the recently the European rule on, on conflict minerals. These, these have been responses by the world um, trying to push from the perspective of the downstream actors, which is your, your gold capitals, if we talk about gold, uh, if it's um, your smelters and producers of tantalite or coltan, if you're talking about that, so trying to have almost like a push effect down the, the, the up the value chain to force um, responsible sourcing. Um, so that, that has been an attempt or there, there are attempts or there are programs and, and mechanisms that have been developed responding to this. Uh, uh, big protocols like the Dodd-Frank Act and the EU. Um, you have the OECD due diligence guidance on responsible mineral supply chain. And you out of that, you have mineral certification mechanisms, for example, around the Great Lakes region, you have the ICGLR1. Uh, this has all been, uh, this is all an attempt to try to respond to the issues of um, pushing for responsible mineral supply chain. And um, and there's a plethora of them. I think that's probably one of my one of the issues that I have with the responses. Uh, it's it's a given that obviously developing practitioners and development agencies do respond, which is a good thing. Uh, but when you start talking about the jurisdiction and you have this plethora of mineral certification mechanisms and due diligence mechanisms, it becomes really confusing. So you can Im imagine because these things are being driven from the production. So so basically. I'm a downstream buyer of a commodity. I'm pushing up the value chain and saying I want responsible um, uh, 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 minerals that are produced in a responsible way. And when it hits to the artisanal miner, you can imagine the burden 
of, of compliance that actually falls on this. So in, it's good, it's being pushed, but I think perhaps sometimes we have been put through about how that the negative and unintended consequences can actually have on that is not mining operation. Um, and, and some countries have responded, I think, quite well. I know that in Rwanda, for example, they then decided to mainstream the certification mechanism so it becomes part of the regulatory environment. So it kind of weeds out all the confusion around due diligence, which, which I think has been a, you know, a, a good way to respond to this plethora of responses to responsible mineral supply chains. You are right about the prolification of uh, these initiatives. Uh, the, 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 the way I see them is, however, is that they, they are different. You have uh, initiatives that actually provide a solution and say, I negotiate and agree uh, with lawmakers that uh, this is how we will ensure responsible sourcing. And the Kimberley process is the perfect example of that. Negotiating with the Americans and the Americans passing the Clean Diamond Act, saying we will ensure that we exclude all diamonds from conflict areas or that in any way offend uh, human rights. And then you have the Dodd-Frank that simply says, if you do this in the United States, you have offended. And in that case, what might happen is that uh, demand might dry out. So my sense is that um, as we consider a solution, to your point, being clear that that solution seeks to solve the problem, but not to constrain the ability of artisanal miners to make a living, or for that matter, to drive artisanal mining underground by moving from the informal to the illegal, because in the absence of a proactive solution, people don't stop needing to make a living just because they no longer can export legally. What tends to happen is that they just find a different solution. And, and my sense is that many of the initiatives lack this understanding. Uh, they respond on the assumption that if you put a law in place and make it difficult for them, then you've achieved something. A am I wrong in, in, in making this observation, Nelly? Yeah, no, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think what, what often happens with some um, development initiatives is that they don't stop to think about the impact that they actually, the unintended consequences of their actions. They come from a very well-meaning place. Uh, but but for, for one example for for me is the what I call disenfranchisation of governments because when you have these due diligence processes or you know certification mechanisms that don't take into account governments like the Kimberley process does that comes in and starts set sets up its mineral certification mechanism it, it you're actually disempowering the government and yet the government is the one that will be left behind when the development project is finished to continue to manage. So I think that it's very important for, for these initiatives that are trying to respond to, respond to things like the Dodd-Frank Act to or the EU rule to actually think about how they actually put government at the center of that, because I think it is government that will continue to, to, to work with, with the artisanal miners in their own country, empower them to be part of the process rather than having a, a parallel process that actually sidelines them and, 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 and at the same time, not being able to support um, you know, these communities in their countries. 
Mm, it's an interesting, actually, as you speak, you, you're making me think, because I think part of the problem is that uh, despite being well-intentioned, uh, these initiatives actually speak to constituents in the countries in which they are initiated. In other words, they are silencing European and American NGOs, but they are not really responding, are they, to the problem that faces artisanal miners. And I think that's where the disconnect is. Because mm -hmm. if they can come up with a scheme that essentially satisfied, if you use global witness or human rights watch, then they can tick the box as mm -hmm. politicians in Europe or the United States. Little regard is given to, okay, but the uh, artisanal miner in Tanzania, the artisanal miner in Guinea, the artisanal miner in uh, Burkina is still not uh, better off. And, and I think if, to your point, the solutions were more holistic, then I think we would uh, probably be better off. Despite all the challenges, do you have examples of countries that you think, despite the limitations, regulate the sector well? And, 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 and in these countries, what are the three key, if you wish, non-negotiables, which you think are absolutely critical to handle the more pervasive aspects uh, and problematic aspects of uh, artisanal small-scale mining? Yeah, Sheila, I think that for me, uh, Rwanda would be the first country that I would say, I think, um, I'll, uh, have a way I've seen positive change in terms of addressing the challenges of the SMC. I think Tanzania is, 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 is another. Um, and I think it's all about uh, political will. Um, and I think that the, the instances um, do point obviously no one has arrived right there's still a lot of work to be done maybe we will never arrive uh there's no silver bullet because i think asm is a moving target depending on what is happening in the world whether it's at a national or regional level uh but i think that if i was to take the case of rwanda for example i think one three of the key things that they have in place is that they do have a legal framework that provides for the asm sector uh, and it's reasonable in what it provides in terms of the rights, uh, which allow for optimal operation as well as ob obligations that allow for management of the impacts and, and things like benefit sharing. The second thing that the, the that I observed in Rwanda um, is, the, is, is, is is ensuring compliance. Uh, the Rwanda Mining Board has a structure that supports compliance, um, and one aspect where this actually comes through in how they actually track and report production. And this is around perhaps the three commodities that um, um, have um, most um, discussed in, when one is talking about responsible mineral supply chains, which is uh, tin tanks and tantalite, which are very contentious. And I think that um, the, the production, uh, the way they actually track production um, leads to the third point that I would like to make is that acknowledging and measuring the economic contribution of the sector. It is so important. Uh, when countries actually fully understand, not use anecdotal data about the contribution of the sector. And then it means that there is motivation to actually do more. Uh, so the statistics uh, of national ASM production are well understood um, so that when the government is making decisions about how to respond, in the case of Rwanda, responding to the challenge of the Dodd-Frank Act, 
they actually saw because it's an, an, an important economic activity in their country. Um, and therefore, government saw it fit to spend the, the time and the resources to make sure that traceability did, was done in a way that actually um, brings about the continued um, existence and, and, and viability of the sector. Thank you once again, uh, Nelly, for joining the Sheila Kama Extracted podcast. And my very best wishes with uh, your work. It's invaluable. Thank you very much, Sheila, for inviting me.